0: Welcome to A New Republic, an oral history of the Indian Constitution. Episode 2, Rebellion. Hello, Um, I'm standing here um, in a very loud and noisy Trafalgar Square. I'm standing right in front of a statue in the south-east corner of the square. Um, I'm looking up at the statue right now and it's of a very regal looking Victorian military gentleman um, standing on this huge pedestal and on the pedestal it says to Major General Sir Henry Havelock KCB and his brave companions in arms during the campaign in India 1857 now underneath this is another uh, quotation by Henry Havelock and it reads as follows Soldiers, your labours your privations, your sufferings and your valour will not be forgotten by a grateful country and right at the bottom there is an inscription which says erected by public subscription 1861 Now, of all the statues in London, this has to be one of the most seen but least noticed. For instance, I have walked past Trafalgar Square many, many times in the last few years and I have really not noticed till very recently that this statue has such a close connection with Indian history. Havelock himself was a major British commander during the rebellion and he led forces that lifted the siege of Lucknow. He died shortly thereafter and to this day you can see his grave in Lucknow. Now, a few years ago, Ken Livingston, the mayor of London, suggested that they replace Havelock's statue with somebody else's because he felt that Havelock wasn't a high-profile enough character from the annals of English history to have such a prominent position. Of course, there was a lot of outrage and the statue stands there to this day. Uh, noticed by nobody, but I think a few confused tourists. But in some ways, I think that is reflective of the current approach towards the First War of Independence or the Sepoy Mutiny. Uh, In Britain, I suppose, it has been eclipsed by the First World War that follows it by 50 or 60 years. And in India, it is taught as this uh, titanic struggle between good and evil that ends badly for the patriots. The truth, of course, is far more complicated. The First War of Independence was a brutal, chaotic conflict that had profound implications for India's government and its constitutional history. And that is what we are going to discuss in uh, in this episode. But first, give me a few minutes, let me get back home away from this tremendous cold and damp at Trafalgar Square. So I will see you in two minutes. In the last episode, we discussed Uh, A little bit about, very quickly, we discussed about how the uh, mutiny breaks out in Bharakpur and then spreads into a national conflagration. Now, what matters to us, the listeners of this podcast, is what really happens after the British finally reassert their military supremacy. It's important to understand the context in Britain right now. By this time, the British public and parliament have been outraged, shocked by the brutality of the war. It's been brutal on both sides. Uh, Several thousand British civilians have been killed and uh, several British soldiers. And after the war is over, the reprisals are brutal on the British side. It is estimated by contemporaries that over one lakh Indian soldiers were slaughtered during and then after the mutiny. In the years since, there are contemporary historians who say that um, indirectly and directly, the British killed one million Indians after the revolt of 1857. Now, to give you some idea of how outraged the British were after the mutiny, I'd like to read a passage from a letter written by a British author around the time, around this period. And in this, he says that if he were to be the king of... If he were the king of India, he would come to India and make this proclamation. Now, I'm going to read the proclamation to you and I'll kind of translate it into simple English after that. This is what the... uh, the author says he will announce. I, the inimitable, holding this office of mine and firmly believing that I hold it by the permission of heaven and not by the appointment of Satan, have the honor to inform you Hindu gentry that it is my intention with all possible avoidance of unnecessary cruelty and with all merciful swiftness of execution to exterminate the race from the face of the earth which disfigured the earth with the late abominable atrocities. In other words, he says that if he were the king of India, he'd come and tell the Hindu gentry that, look, um, I am the king, your rightful king, and uh, excuse me, but I am going to uh, eliminate your race from the surface of the earth in the most humane ma- humane way possible. I'm really sorry. It's a pretty shocking declaration, and it was made by none other than uh, Charles Dickens. Now, thankfully, this barbaric view was not endorsed by the British Parliament itself, or at least not by a majority of them. In fact, what the British Parliament realized was that the the East India Company could no longer be left to administer India. India had to be taken over and brought under the crown. And this required a legislative framework. So in August 1858, this framework was established in the form of the first Government of India Act of 1858. Now, before we discuss this further, we need to understand the context in which this act has been drawn up. What the British realized after the mutiny is that the East India Company may have screwed up. And they identify a few ways in which the East India Company may have screwed up enough to let something like uh, the rebellion happen. They realized that one, the East India Company uh, was annexing too much property and pissing off too many people. The East India Company was dabbling too much in the cultural and religious lives of the natives. And the East India Company simply hadn't done enough to build what for that period was a sophisticated, effective uh, system of governance. And their immediate reaction was to uh, draw up the Government of India Act to plug all these holes. So they want to correct all these mistakes. and, And I'll tell you in a little while how they do it. Now, there's a personal observation I'd like to make at this point. Which is, after an event of such, uh, of such magnitude, like the revolt of 1857, it's kind of interesting that um, the reaction of the British was to pass a legislative system and establish a form of government. Remember, the, the, bill, the government of India Act of 1858 is not what you would expect uh, to be the result of a, an outraged colonial power. It is not an attempt to put an errant colony in its place. In many ways, it is an attempt to correct past mistakes. I'm not saying that uh, the British stopped their economic extraction from India. Absolutely not. In fact, one of the aims of the Government of India Act was to make it easier and more organized to extract from India economically. But at least now, they realized that this could not happen in the absence of institutions and governance, which is why the Act is important. Now, Even then, at this point in Britain, anybody who was seen as wanting reconciliation with the Indians was still subject to abuse. For instance, uh, Viceroy Canning, the first first Governor-General of India, was often called Clemency Canning because of his tendency to seek reconciliation. Still, what is remarkable is that between the period of 1858 and 1862, the new British Raj government unleashed a whole swathe of uh, reforms, especially in the areas of education and law and order. And many of these institutions, laws and protocols exist in India to this day. For instance, uh, the the Indian Penal Court was a product of this period. The universities in Calcutta, Bombay and Madras are products of this period. Uh, It's quite a remarkable series of reforms. And it is not, like I said before, what you would expect an enraged, outraged colonial power to do. So some credit must go to what must have been a minority of British parliamentarians and lawmakers who uh, wanted to build institutions rather than unleash havoc. Now, from an administrative point of view, the Government of India Act also formalized a structure of governance. Right at the top, you had a Secretary of State for India who worked out of London, who worked, uh, who basically worked with tremendous autonomy and with a very centralized structure. He established and sat over an India office, which in many ways was a government within the government. And uh, slowly you had a structure where you had the Secretary of State, you had the India House in London, and then you had a Viceroy in India itself who reported back to London and so on. So there was the beginnings of a of a sophisticated governance structure developing. Now, there, besides the uh, Government of India Act of 1858, there are two more documents which I'd like to touch upon. In this podcast, and I think they form a continuum which helps us understand the evolution of constitutional thinking. The first is the uh, Queen Victoria's proclamation, which is sent out to India on the 1st of November 1858. On this day, we are told in districts all over India, uh, representatives of the crown read out a proclamation through which essentially Victoria says that India, you are now under new management. Now, I'd like to read out a few excerpts from this proclamation which I think are quite interesting. The first one. We desire no extension of our present territorial possessions and while we will permit no aggression upon our dominions or our rights to be attempted with impunity, we shall sanction no encroachment on those of others. We hold ourselves bound to the natives of our Indian territories by the same obligations of duty which bind us to all our other subjects and these obligations, by the blessings of Almighty God, we shall faithfully and conscientiously fulfil. And it is our further will that, so far as may be, are subjects of whatever race or creed be freely and impartially admitted to offices in our service, the duties of which they may be qualified by their education, ability, and integrity, duly to discharge. And Victoria goes on and on, as Victoria tends to. Now, the gist of this proclamation is, in many ways, to correct the mistakes made by the East India Company. So they are saying they're putting a stop to territorial expansion. They're saying no more expansion of British uh, of the British colony. They're saying no more dabbling in the culture and religious lives of the natives. And they're saying that, and this is a big statement, that Indian natives will be treated at par with all other British subjects. It's quite an interesting document and I highly recommend you read a copy, PDFs of which are available online. Now, we are told that the proclamation was read all over India to great pomp and celebration, especially, we are told, in Bombay. However, not all the British were happy with this proclamation or with this sudden need of the monarchy and the parliament in Britain to equate the Indian subjects with the British. And there's this sense of discontent which keeps bubbling and then finally boils over in 1883, almost 30 years later, when the then Viceroy tries to pass the Ilbert Bill in Parliament. Now, let me quickly give you a context for the Ilbert Bill. Basically, what is happening is Indians were joining the uh, judicial system and being promoted up as lawyers and magistrates. And suddenly they, they reached a situation where if you promoted an Indian as a district magistrate, for example, British subjects would then fall under him and he would have to try Europeans. And this was outrageous to the British and they refused to do this. And a lot of British administrators in India began to realize that this was unsustainable. You couldn't tell Indian judges to only judge certain cases and tell the Europeans that they would not have to be subject to Indian magistrates. So Lord Ripon and several other governors um, and administrators uh, proposed the bill. It was taken to Parliament and there was tremendous outrage. Um, A lot of British women in particular came back and said that it was appalling if a British woman had to be tried by one of these native Indian judges. So the bill is... Subject to a lot of controversy, it becomes this major national event. And finally, a tremendously watered-down version of the Ilbert Bill is adopted in 1884. But it's an unequal compromise and many, many educated Indians are extremely upset. This is what provokes many of them in 1885 to form a new organization to promote a greater role for educated Indians within the British administration. And this organization which decides to call itself the Indian National Congress, will go on to have a tremendous impact on India's uh, history. Now, from this point onwards, what we see is a long tussle for self-determination, largely driven by an Indian elite and uh, resistance from the British government. And this tussle goes on for over half a century until um, independence is finally achieved. And the next step in this tussle is the Indian Council's Act of 1909. This is important because this is the act that for the first time introduces the concept of elections into India. We we'll look at the Indian Councils Act of 1909 in the next episode. Take care and see you then.